everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. This is Chuck Smith, and I'm here to bring you the weekend warm-up. BFW's weekly show where we hit on all the huge news of the week. Of course, this was quite a pretty crazy week, honestly, at Bayern Munich. You had a big win over Wolfsburg, which I think was a little bit harder than most people thought it would be. You had some transfers that maybe some people didn't think were going to happen. You just had some overall crazy news. And, of course, the Better Call Saul series finale, which I would be doing a disservice if I didn't talk about uh, at the end of the episode. So we will definitely hit on that. Uh, I have some uh, crazy thoughts about that, mostly because I think it, it has taught me a lot about myself and how I feel about that show ending. So let's get right to it. We'll start with the five things we learned this week regarding Bayern Munich. And hot off the heels of the win over Wolfsburg, things look good. You start. We're starting to see how the squad is settling, who's going to play where. And there's a little bit of fallout that happened. And, of course, that came in the form of Tangai Nianzu transferring over to Sevilla, which I don't think, man, I did not expect it to happen for a couple of reasons. Now, let me first say I think it's an awesome move for the kid because he's going to get far more opportunity there than he ever would have at Bayern Munich. When you're stuck behind Matthijs De Ligt, Luca Hernandez, Dio Upamecano, Benjamin Pavar, and even Josip Stanisic. If you're essentially going to be the sixth choice center back at his age, it's not a good situation. I'm glad that the club was able to find a good solution. And in fact, a solution that is very beneficial to them because not only are they getting paid now, but the potential to get paid a lot more later is there. And I think that is a huge key because if this kid becomes as good as the club thinks he was going to be or is going to be, they are poised to make a lot of money through a sell-on clause, which is great. It was good business by Brazo. I think he deserves a lot of credit for what he did here, and I know it was hard for him to do it. And here's why. Uh, Tankai Niazu came over from PSG, and it was one of those heist transfers where Brazo was able to go in get a prized young prospect from a European rival, convince him to join Bayern Munich, and do so for free. I mean, essentially, what Brazo was able to do is get this investment property and flip it to Sevilla for what amounts to probably, it's probably going to finish up at at least 20 million euro, plus any potential sell-on fee, should Sevilla end up selling him at some point down the road. So, it was a great piece of business, one of the best that Brazo has done, and it fits into that philosophy we had heard about with the club, where Byron for years did not want to be a selling club, but now they are turning into a semblance of one by investing in these young players, whether that means time, whether that means salary, or whether it means a lower transfer fee. They're investing that, making that initial uh, financial investment, and then they're looking for that return. And in Nianzu, they got a great return. If you want to break down his game and maybe why he hasn't been able to break through, I would say it comes down to this. And I wrote this earlier in the week, is that his game is very immature. It's, it's positionally, he has had some trouble understanding where he needs to be, when he needs to be there. His challenges have been sloppy. He hasn't always been the most precise passer. But these are all things that, while they are a problem now, they really could be worked on and improved upon so that he, when he gets to the stage of his career where he's ready to be a consistent contributor, 
those won't be issues. But for now, he does have some problems to iron out. He's going to be able to go to Sevilla, work on those things, and hopefully be able to really get his game in line to where he can do a lot of things and have a good career and really just be able to to make something out of this potential that he has. And I think he's got a good chance to do that. Unfortunately for Bayern Munich, it was it was not going to happen there just because of the numbers. And I think when Matthias de Ligt came in, it really sealed the deal for Tengai Nianzu. There was just no chance he was going to play. And when even when you look at a player like Josip Stanisic, he is getting all kinds of interest uh, from other clubs in Europe. And they f- need to find him a way to play at some point, somewhere. Of course, he can play at both outside back positions. He can play some center back. He can play the six a little bit. Uh, there's just a lot of talent at Bayern Munich, and that's a good problem to have. So, uh, you know, it's, it's it's one of those things where you look at this situation, it just made sense on every level. Tanganyanzu should get more of an opportunity at Sevilla. Bayern Munich gets a, a nice influx of cash and some flexibility with some of their defenders. And, of course, when you look at Benjamin Pavar and you look at Josip Stanisic, you look at two guys that can play a couple different positions. So should there be an injury, should something unfortunate happen, a suspension or something like that, Bayern has options, and that's very, very important. And I think that makes Julian Nagelsmann and Brazo both feel very good about where they sit with their defense. So, yeah, great move by Bayern Munich. Excellent business. I have not always been the biggest fan of some of Brazo's decisions, some of his moves, but I always will give him credit uh, for what he does well. And this is just maybe the best move he's ever made when you look at it from A to Z to get Nianzu for free and flip him for what he did and then add the sell-on clause that was just a masterful piece of business and speaking of brazo the second thing we learned this week is that he is up for a contract extension which could which could go as long as three years now as i just stated there have, i've had this up and down relationship in trying to assess brazo because i don't always agree with how he has handled people how he's communicated how he's worked internally through the typical type of politics you would have in any big organization. I don't always agree with his moves, but like I said, I am always quick to credit him, and I do think this is a deserved extension if it does happen. He has made some good moves. He has closed deals that you know I personally didn't think he had chances to get done. He has grown into this role, and I think it did take some learning. I think that his experience with Nico Kovac and basically shutting Kovac down from getting anything he wanted, I think Brazo learned from that. I think he learned from the, the disagreements with Flick and yeah, seeing how that impacted not just the front office, but the coaching staff and the entire club. I think Brazo was able to learn from that. And I think he was able to, to process what happened, what went wrong, and how he could do things better the next time around. So I think that's why we're seeing some of those things improved that maybe even a year ago, a year and a half ago, didn't look like, you know, would get, didn't look like they were going to get better anytime soon. So uh, this makes perfect sense for the club. It makes perfect sense for Brazo. He is enacting a plan right now. This is a, a kind of an odd situation where the club has a relatively new coach, Julian Nagelsmann, in his second year. They're flipping over their roster as some of the, really great players get older they are integrating new players and they're doing a lot of interesting things with their youth and if you've noticed 
a lot of the transactions on BFW and you've noticed what is going on with Bayern Munich and youth players, you can see that they are identifying good young prospects, some of whom may make it at Bayern Munich, some of whom may be flipped and sold down the road, but this is the new way to do business. If Bayern Munich is going to compete in this financial landscape, they're going to have to rely on creative solutions like this. And if that means flipping young players, then that's what they have to do because when you look at TV revenue and you look at just the overall revenue streams for teams in, in the English Premier League or even La Liga, it's very tough for Bayern to match up with those Premier League squads. It's very tough for them to match up with Real Madrid and FC Barcelona. Of course, what Barcelona does with their revenue is a whole separate question. But to the point, Brazo is the person that the club is looking to really kind of direct the ship here. Uh, he's got excellent support from Oliver Kahn and Herbert Heiner, at least as of now. Heiner's uh, up for re-election at the, at the annual meeting, so we'll see what happens with that. But it seems like everyone right now is on the same page. Brazo, of course, works very closely with Julian Nagelsmann and Marco Nepp. Uh, there is definitely a good feeling about the way things are going. And if you remember the period when Flick was... Uh, on his way out the door, there was not a good feeling. It felt like a rudderless ship, like no one knew what to do. Oliver Kahn was very hands-off at the time, and I think that played a role in how things shook shook out because Kahn was kind of in that new role where he, at least in the beginning of the Flick saga, where he was either kind of ramping into it and wasn't officially... Uh, the CEO yet, or he had just taken over. It was that whole transition process that kind of took probably too long. And then through Khan's first, I would say, <clears throat> six months on the job, he was extremely hands-off. And he was focused more on this pie-in-the-sky, high-level organizational strategies, which, again, I've talked about this before. I don't buy any of that crap. I am more of like results, results, results working with people, communication, collaboration, actual hands, hands-on, hands-on approach working with people. I'm just not a, I'm not a fan of the corporate BS. And I think that once Khan got all that out of his system, he has become a better CEO. And I think that he is starting to look at maybe how Carl Heinz Rummenigge worked in that position. And I think he's adopting some of those strategies, which is, which has helped everything come together. And with Brazo being a trusted sporting director right now, I think it does make a lot of sense with what they're doing, how they're working. And for him to get this extension, I think it's good stability for the organization. Now, let's hope he can keep the good decisions coming and wipe away some of those uh, those bad calls that, that we all know about. So uh, it, it should be commended you know, he should be commended for what he's done and he does deserve the extension. So uh, congrats to him if he gets it. And I think his evolution as an executive and how this is all played out for him, I think that's why he's getting this. And if you really, if you want to think back even to that documentary on Amazon Prime, he, he showed signs, sides of himself that we had not seen uh, as a public. He was talking through some things in his life. There were some vulnerabilities there, and he seemed like a genuine person. During the whole Flick saga, he did not seem like a genuine person. He seemed, at least what we saw publicly before that documentary came out, it was it was really actually 
uh, quite confrontational. Uh, so I was happy to see that there was this side of him within that documentary. And I think that he has toned his act down and figured out a way to communicate better and work well with others. So he deserves it. And you have to give him credit for that. Even if you're a person like me who didn't always, um, like everything he did. And, And I think what you'll always find about me is I don't like every move a manager makes. I don't like every move a sporting director makes. I don't like every game a player plays. And I'm not afraid to say that. It doesn't mean I have anything against them personally. It doesn't mean I dislike them overall. Like, I didn't like some of Brazo's moves, but I never thought he was a bad sporting director. I just thought he made some poor decisions. Uh, I don't always agree with Julian Nagelsmann, but I still think he's a bright, young, innovative coach who was a good fit for Bayern Munich. It's just how it is. And I do think at times, whether it's on our site or on social media or whatever, if you have any dissenting opinion that people assume you're just a hater. And we see this a lot with the Roy Sané, who we'll talk about in a little bit on our site, because he is a controversial figure in a lot of ways. He does some tremendous things on the pitch, but he also... Uh, has some issues, with it, whether it's in his game or with his personality or whatever. And we'll dive into that, but it's okay to criticize. It's just, you know, it's it's part of the game. It's what we're here for. But, you know, we do, at least on our site, try and prevent things from going over the top. So, um, you know, maybe some of you feel like we don't always do that, but uh, we definitely try to, and at least with me, you know, when I criticize someone, I, I don't try and fly off the handle. Like, I'm not going to come in here and spit fire just because Brazo signed, you know, Bunasar, right? Like, I mean, yeah, it's a terrible signing. It doesn't make sense. But, you know, it, whatever. No GM or sporting director is going to be perfect in their moves. So credit to Brazo. He deserves the extension. And this should be, uh, you know, a very stable situation for Bayern Munich moving forward. Uh, the third thing we learned this week, and I, I won't go on and on about this, is that Robert Lewandowski has had a tough time starting life in La Liga. Now, listen, he did not have a great game in Barca's opener, which was disappointing. Like, And I'm not one of these people that I'm going to sit here and hate on him, because I'm not. I think he's a great player. I think he deserves success, and I think he's worked extremely hard for everything that he's gotten, and he's never been entitled or anything like that, Okay. I mean, sure, he's got a bit of an attitude now, but I think if you went through what he went through in his life, what you've went through in his career, yeah, at this point, maybe you might start to feel like, yeah, yeah, I deserve what I've gotten here because I've worked my butt off, I've put in all the hours, and I've pretty much been a maniac about approaching my career. So he might feel that way. But I don't wish him ill will. I don't wish him failure, especially at Barcelona. I want to see him do well there. Part of, part of that is because I hate seeing the Bundesliga dogged relentlessly for no reason. You know, we've all heard the Farmers League crap. We've all heard, you know, every type of slight about the quality of playing the Bundesliga. So I would like to see Lewandowski go to Barca, play well. Didn't happen the first week. But things actually got worse for him because he got mobbed by a bunch of fans this week at Barca. And then one of them stole his watch. Like, they stole his watch. It's not even like the situation where Frank Ribéry was in Italy and someone broke into his house. Like, I mean, that stuff kind of can happen. But Lewandowski was in the car. Someone reached in and and took his watch, which is crazy. Like, who does now? Now, luckily for Lewandowski, 
he got out and chased the guy or the person. I shouldn't say guy because who knows who it was. But he got out and chased the person and uh, did not get the person because I guess they had a good start. You would figure Lewandowski would be able to track down some schmo like me or you. Uh, but I'm guessing the person had a good leg up. But the authorities did bring in the suspect. They did recover the watch. So uh, I'm glad that he, he survived that without any major issue. But damn, Barcelona, what are you guys doing over there? I mean, you realize what you have in that guy, and then you're going to go unleash these morons to you know, swarm his car, steal his watch. And the funniest part of the Mundo Deportivo article was they were TikTokers. Like, what the hell? I Listen, I don't do TikTok. I do Twitter. Uh, I have an Instagram account that I literally never use because I don't, I don't understand Instagram, to be honest with you. Like, I don't get it. And I, like, when you're like, like not like a good looking dude like me, you don't, you're not too eager to go posting your picture around. So I don't really get Instagram. I know my kids do it, but I'm, I'm not into it. So I pretty much stick to Twitter when it comes to social media. So, but I don't get the TikTokers. I don't get any of it. I don't get why they are the way they are, why they always think the world needs to be on camera. And I don't get them being part of the, the swarm of people who stole Robert Lewandowski's watch. So damn you TikTokers, stay off of Lewandowski and his uh, belongings. So hopefully things improve for Lewandowski and he can have a good showing for Barcelona this weekend. It would be good for him to uh, get off on a good foot, score some goals and, uh, you know, really start to establish himself there because I think that in the end he deserves to have success. The fourth thing that we learned this week is something that we touched on just a few minutes ago, and that was with Leroy Sané. And we've gotten to the point with Sané where he has become a lightning rod on BFW. He has uh, become a figure where it's almost like you either have to love the guy or you have to hate him, or one side or the other is going to come crashing down on you for saying one thing or the other. Well, the big news with Sané this week is that he has pretty much been relegated to the B team. Uh, within training sessions. So that's not where he wants to be, obviously. I'm sure this is not what he envisioned when he came over from Manchester United. One of the things that Sané had in mind was to come to Bayern Munich to win the Bundesliga, to win the Pokal, to win the Champions League, and and hopefully to win a World Cup with Germany. Um, Things haven't always worked out for Sané since he moved over. And I think what we've seen with Sané this season is that his skills are still there. We don't know about his confidence because he, he has struggled a bit and, and that's okay to say, like he hasn't been great and he hasn't been great for a while. He was not great last spring. Uh, he was a monster in the fall and early winter, but ultimately he was not able to put together the type of consistent season that I think everybody wanted. And I think that he has not performed to the level in which he's capable of uh, this season for sure, or even toward the end of last season. So this B-team designation for him, you know, there's no reason to think it's going to stay there, but I understand it at this point. In fact, I agree with it. I look at the starting lineup, and I see Sadio Mane and Serge Gnabry up top. Sure, you could argue that Sané maybe should be given an opportunity up there, but I don't even think that's where Nagelsmann sees him. Maybe he does. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure that Sané could really 
break through at that next level, which is right now played by Jamal Musiala and Thomas Muller, because they have just been spectacular. Where do you fit Sané in among those four? And that's not even counting Kingsley Coman, who I rate higher than Sané at this point, because just on overall disruptiveness, I think Sané is better. Uh, So, I mean, I'm sorry, Coman is better. The thing with Sané is he's got that potential and he's got all of the ability. What is stopping him from putting it together? Is it confidence? Is it comfort level? Is there something he doesn't like about playing for Julian Nagelsmann? Or is he just not as good as some of the other players? And it's fair to ask all these questions without somebody flipping out because how dare you question Sané's ability or anything like that. He's still a good player. And yeah, he could probably start on plenty of teams. But right now, he's not in the Bayern Munich eleven. Will he get there at some point this season on a consistent basis? I, I don't know. I do expect him to be put in the rotation soon because as this heavy schedule starts to heat up, we're going to see Sané have to play either some Pokal games, some Champions League games, some Bundesliga games. Of course, there's going to be the World Cup. There is going to be time to go around for everyone. And I would say the same thing about Matthijs De Ligt, Nusara Mizraoui, there is going to be a time when all of these guys are going to be needed. Uh, but for Sané, I think there's been so much of a spotlight on him because of how he came to Bayern Munich. What was done to get him there, the whole process of how long it took, um, it absolutely was a spectacle. And I think that since that point, it has put a lot of pressure on Sané to perform. It's definitely heightened the expectations of fans who... Again, probably we're looking for the next coming of Aryan Robin or Franck Ribéry, and they're not going to get that at this point. And not that Sané can't ever be that. He's just not that right now. So this whole B-team move, I get it. I think it's the right move. Whether he stays at that level all season or not is up to him. I mean, sure, he's got to compete with his teammates, but he's going to have to raise his level of play. And often, you know, either on our site or on social media or wherever you hear the whole, you know, the whole iron sharpens iron thing that having all of these good players around and competing, competing will keep them all better and more consistent, which could be true. But for some players, that type of environment is not what they enjoy. They like the comfort of knowing where they're going to be, when they're going to be there, how much they're going to play. And Sané could fall into that realm of player. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of player either. Some players just like that comfort level. And if he's like that, fine. It's all well and good. But right now, he's not performing well enough to get where he wants to be on the depth chart. And it's certainly one of the things that we'll be following. It's certainly one of the things that most Bayern fans will be focused on moving forward because this guy is so talented and he's got so much ability that you would think that if he can put it all together, it's just one more weapon in the arsenal for Julian Nagelsmann. But right now, Sané... Looks like he's improving on the field. Looks like he's getting better, but he's just not up to the level of some of the other players right now. So Sané has some work to do. What will he do from this point? I don't know, but it's going to be a lot of fun to watch because there's going to be some stiff squad competition every week. The fifth thing that we learned this week, and this kind of relates to Leroy Sané's situation, is that Serge Gnabry's injury represents a big opportunity for Kingsley Coman, who all of a sudden finds himself on the outside looking in of the starting 11. Coman is is a dynamic talent. 
uh, the footwork, the explosiveness, the ability to create offense. His game has matured to the point where Bayern Munich can now fully trust him to be the type of player to start every game. The biggest problem for Coman might be is if you look at his skill set and his performance, just like Sané, he's best working as a pure winger. Uh, this 4 triple 2 alignment that Julian Nagelsmann is using right now, I don't know where Coman fits in best. Is he? Does he fit in best at the top of the formation as one of the, for lack of a better term, strikers? I mean, it's a very fluid formation, so it's not like just because you're at the top to start, you're going to stay there. Um, one thing we've heard about Coman is that his finishing isn't great and that he's not the most dependable finisher, so playing him up there might be a detriment. So then you look at the spot where Julian Nagelsmann supposedly prefers him, which is in that attacking midfield role in that second level of the 4 triple two. Well, right now, you could really argue the two best players in Bayern's attack over the first three games, two Bundesliga, one DFL Super Cup, have been Thomas Muller and Jamal Musiala. They have consistently created offense. They have looked dynamic in doing so. I'm saying dynamic a lot. I guess I must have that on my brain for some reason. But they both look great in doing so. And they have been very consistent and dangerous. And honestly, they work so well together. And the way that Musiala and Muller and Sadio Mane and Serge Gnabry have all interchanged positions and spots on the field at different times and making different runs to occupy different positions, it has worked really, really well. And sure, some people can look at the Wolfsburg game from last week and say, well, it was only 2-0 and they, didn't, they weren't always consistent. Yeah, they, they weren't last week. But you have to remember, Wolfsburg was going to muck that game up from, from the get-go. That was never going to be easy because Niko Kovac was not going to let it be easy. Who wants to go back to their old team and get their doors blown off? No one. So he did what any good manager would do when he knew he was outgunned. Told his team to pack it in. He told his team... To, to grab, clutch, and pull everyone they could, make it a dirty game, make it a tough game, to try and take away some of Bayern's speed advantage, and try and keep everything compact. And they did that. Wolfsburg did a great job with that. Uh, even against the, the, the speedy legs of, of players like Sadio Mane or, or Serge Gnabry or even Leroy Sané, who came in at halftime, it, Wolfsburg did a great job. Would a player like Coman in a game like that bring a different element that he could help break down something like that? Maybe. And I think this is where it's going to be very interesting for Julian Nagelsmann because he's going to have to look at this starting 11. He's going to have to look at this just glut of talent and try and pick out the best matchup for every game and what players he thinks will work best together against certain teams. And I don't think this is going to be a season where we're going to see a starting 11 just be set. Like, we're going to know who the Champagne 11 is. I don't think it's going to be like that. I think this is going to be fluid at all times. And I think that through this, we're going to see a lot of different combinations, especially early in the season. And we're going to see how these players interact as a unit, how they interact together in close quarters. And I think that's going to really help determine where things go. And how Julian Nagelsmann manages all this is going to be the major plot point of the season for me. Because I think he's got a a huge task ahead of him. And I've talked about in in the past weeks about managing egos and setting expectations. I don't think any of that is going to be easy for Nagelsmann. Uh, But I do think when you look at a situation just like this, 
and you have a chance for Kingsley Coman to come into the lineup and, and by the reports right now, Coman's going to come in and take Muller's spot and Muller's going to move up to be one of the forwards working with Mane. Uh, I, I think it presents a lot of options and, and it gives a, a, a scientist like Julian Nagelsmann so many chemicals to work with to build what he wants to build and come up with the secret formula that's going to bring a Champions League title home. I, I just don't know if he's going to tinker so much that, he, that that he'll never settle on anything. And if if I look at anything with this this talent that Byron has, it does worry me that he just won't be able to settle on something that that works and that we're just going to see players coming in and out all season. Now, the one good thing I think you could say about this week is that it looks like Byron is starting to figure out what to do with some of the players who are are more on the deep end of the bench and specifically the young kids like Gabriel Vidovich and Paul Vonner. Now, Vonner, it looks like he will continue to train with the first team, but will be playing games with Bayern Munich too, which makes perfect sense. He's still just 16. He desperately needs game time, and he, for his ability, probably needs to be playing with uh, or practicing with the Bayern Munich first team on a daily basis. I think that is absolutely what is best for him and will help with his development. But at the same time, getting in games, playing in games, and getting that experience is, is uber important. So he'll get the best of both worlds there, and that will work out for him. As far as, far as Vidovich goes, he's very interesting because Byron right now is recognizing that this kid is pretty good, obviously, and they want to ensure that he's playing at a higher level than the regional league. So right now, he is being looked at as a potential loanee to teams in the Bundesliga, including FC Augsburg, which would be great geographically for Bayern Munich. So, uh, you know, what we like to see right now is with all of this talent, and that's not even mentioning Joshua Xerxes or Eric Maxim Chupo-Moting, who are still in the roster. Xerxes could also go, but Chupo looks set. There's just a lot of talent. There's too much talent. So when you have young kids that need time, I think that Bayern is and this is a credit to Brazo once again, is is trying to find different ways to make that talent work and different ways to to utilize and put together utilize the kids and put together the best plan for them. With Xerxes, it looks like they're going to try and cash out on him while the, his stock is pretty high, which is again a very smart move. At this point, Xerxes has no future with Bayern Munich. He's not going to get any playing time, so his value will only go down this season. It would be best to sell him before this window ends, and I do think that that's part of the plan. But back to how this all started before we started really diving into the depth chart. This is an opportunity for Kingsley Coman to jump over some of these players and show what he can do. And to be honest, a very good opponent for him to do it against VFL Bochum is uh, not exactly the strongest club in the Bundesliga. So Coman, I'm sure, will be looking to to have a good game and see if he can put his uh, mark on the score sheet and in the starting lineup and make it hard for Julian Nagelsmann to take him out of it. So that will be a key subplot to the game on Sunday, which hopefully you guys are listening to this before that, but if not, no big deal, right? Finally, we're going to close on something I've spent a long time watching. Um, Better Call Saul is... To my knowledge, at least right now, it's, I guess, the final installment of the Breaking Bad universe, at least as of now. Of course, we saw the original Breaking Bad series 
We saw the El Camino movie, which really tied up Jesse Pinkman's storyline, at least in terms of seeing what happens with him. And then Better Call Saul, which was the prequel to Breaking Bad, uh, but also had elements of a sequel as we find out what happens to Jimmy McGill slash Saul Goodman slash Gene Takovic. So I'm going to take you through my thought process as this this whole show was winding down, especially that last episode. When we started off, we started off quick in that, that finale. And it was a situation where, of course, uh, <laughs> Gene Takovic found himself on the run very quickly. And Jeffy's mom uh, dimed him out to the police after seeing the video, and they were able to get him, uh, start their process of getting him. So we did get to see a brief period where Gene Takovic was on the run. And I, I, I don't know what this says about me. I was so rooting for him to make it. I didn't want to see him get captured. I was hoping he would be able to use his con man brain to find a way out. And and there was really a tinge of disappointment with how he was apprehended, at least for me, and how quickly it happened. Because I can always consider that character of Saul Goodman slash Gene Taglick, whatever you want to call him, as really someone who was never given credit for how smart he was, especially when it came to street street smarts. And the fact that he was apprehended so quickly, I, I was disappointed. And it, it, I, like I said, I don't know what it says about me, that I was rooting for the bad guy here. I really was. I wanted to see him make it. And I wanted to see him escape the trouble. I wanted to see him link back up with Kim Wexler. And I wanted to see them go off together in that van with uh, the carpet, uh, I'm sorry, the vacuum cleaner salesman or repairman, and start a whole new life together fresh, because I felt like the characters deserved it. And when I started to think about the end result of the episode, I realized how selfish of a viewer I was, because I wanted this uh, story to keep going. I didn't want to see it end. And with that, I was letting my own feelings kind of dictate where I wanted the story to go and how I felt it should end. But when I took a step back, I let it all come together. I let it all play out. And I think it was during a commercial break that I kind of like rebooted my brain and just accepted what was happening. And I thoroughly enjoyed what happened. And really what this whole show ended up being about was this character evolution for how Jimmy McGill became Saul Goodman, became Gene Tagovic, but then eventually reverted back to Jimmy McGill. And it, it was a whole development arc of this person who probably was not a bad person, probably was a person that wanted to have a fun a little too much and push the limit, uh, but wasn't bad, and then found himself in this bad world. And things did not work out for him at many times in his personal life. He had a lot of issues with acceptance and dealing with his brother and family. And he always lived with a bit of a chip on his shoulder because he could never live up to the standards that his brother had set, the expectations maybe that people had for him. And he did what he knew how to do best, which was bad things. (laughs) Uh, I don't think he wanted to be a bad guy. I think he wanted to be a good guy. 
but he found himself in this world. And I think it's very much the same way that Walter White's character evolved. Now, Walter, for all of his faults, had good intentions at the beginning of his process of becoming a mega criminal. I don't think Saul Goodman's character ever really set out to be this this arch criminal. I don't think that was the intent, but it's how life went. It's how he started to get some semblance of success and he bought into it. And why that's all important is because when you look at how the finale played out, you look at those ending scenes and what he did, how he was able to manipulate the DEA and FBI into working that sentence down from 86 years to seven years because he was so good at being a con man, so good at lying, so good at putting on a show that the the people in the DEA and the FBI, they couldn't trust themselves to actually get the case done and he could have walked away free. So they accepted that plea deal, but little did we know the whole plan changed when Kim Wexler had the unfortunate idea to go to Howard Hamlin's widow and confess to everything, which put her uh, pretty much in the crosshairs of some legal trouble. And, of course, how the episode ends is that Saul Goodman turns back into Jimmy McGill and does the right thing. He builds on that whole story that he had, the sob story that was going to no doubt break a juror. And then he has this moment where he's so self-aware it's something that you knew was always in the character, but you never thought you would see because who would basically indict himself? Um, and it was pretty remarkable how he did it. It was really remarkable how it was written and how it all played out, I thought, was just phenomenal. And even though I was selfish about how I wanted this to end and where I wanted this to go, I had to appreciate how it was done. And if there's one thing that you have to say about the showrunners and writers of the Breaking Bad universe is that they 100% of the time always deliver. And I've talked about it many times on this. Breaking Bad and The Wire for me were always neck and neck for my favorite show ever. And I love them both. And like, I don't rewatch them, but I could at any point and be completely satisfied. If you only, if you said I had to take two shows and I could only watch two shows the rest of my life, those would be it. And, you know, I always kind of went back and forth with, which one was better? Which one did I like more? And I, I like them both just a ton. So which one was better? And, and I've said this before. It, to me, it came down to Breaking Bad because it just had the better ending. And Better Call Saul, while it didn't quite go as far as Breaking Bad in terms of how good the ending was, I still prefer the Breaking Bad ending. I think it was damn close. And I don't know that I can differentiate Breaking Bad from Better Call Saul. I don't think I can separate them into two different shows because they were so tied together. It would almost be like having a, like a prequel to The Wire where you know you see how Omar turns into Omar or how uh, Avon Barksdale turns into to Barksdale or how McNulty ends up the way he does, right? Like all great characters, all probably could have had a, a prequel that was insanely good. But Breaking Bad, the universe, they did it with Better Call Saul. And, I, you know, I wasn't one of the people very skeptical at the beginning of this. I was on board from the get-go. I wanted to see this. I wanted. I loved the character of Saul Goodman. I wanted to see how he became who he became. 
and what led up to it. And I got to be honest, the show completely for me lived up to everything A to Z. I'm not going to, like I said, I can't differentiate Breaking Bad from Better Call Saul and I can't separate them in my mind. So to me, it's all just one long show and I throw El Camino in that as, as well. In fact, I would like to see someone actually put everything in chronological order in like a DVD set or something. So like you could watch like everything from the beginning of Better Call Saul straight through uh, the ending of Better Call Saul and El Camino to what happens with some of the primary characters. But in another selfish way, I hope this isn't the end of the Breaking Bad universe. I hope there's something more to come. But I get it completely if there's not. And I have to give a lot of credit to... The, the producers, the directors, the showrunners, the writers, they were able to do something which is almost impossible with me, and that's make me feel good about an ending even when it was sad. And it was sad because you become attached to those characters. You like what they are. You want to see them continue on. But with Jimmy McGill sitting in a jail cell for 86 years, uh, but who knows, with uh, good behavior, and you see Kim Wexler... Uh, you know, at the prison, seeing him, having that last conversation. Of course, we had all the great cinematography echoing the opening scenes of Better Call Saul with the final scenes uh, to see how it all played out and to see how that character went from good guy to bad guy to made things right guy. Uh, well, as much as he could, um, you know, to me, it was just a fantastic journey. And, 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 you know, I thought it was great. And I'm sad to see the show go. Uh, but for me, uh, it, it's up there definitely in the pantheon of great shows of all time, even if I can't find a way in my brain to break it away from Breaking Bad. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed the Byron portion of this. But I did feel like I needed to talk about that Better Call Saul finale because I know there are a ton of fans out there of the show and, and some of you listen to this and some of you read BFW. So, uh, I I'm open to talk about Byron, of course, anytime, but if you guys want to chat about better call Saul, definitely hit the comments on the post for this or on the weekend, warm up, uh, the actual column that we do every Friday. So, uh, you want to do that or even on social media, hit me up. Cause, uh, you know, I'd love to talk about it and get your thoughts because I don't know that everybody felt the same way I did, but, uh, just a huge, uh, piece of, uh, appreciation for me on how it all played out, even if I'm a selfish prick sometimes. <laughs> all right. So that's it for me this week. Appreciate you guys hanging in there. Uh, you can always get me at the barrel blog. You can get, uh, the site at Bavarian FB works ladies hit Tommy Adams up at Tommy Adams 71. The guy, he, he, listen, good looking dude. Nice guy. I mean, he's friendly. doesn't have any weird quirks that I know of. Uh, you know, you can do a pretty good English accent. You, you should really look into that. Check him out if you're, or you're, you know, a lady of Byron who would like a fellow Byron fan as a, as a good chap to spend some time with if you're in the uh, Connecticut area. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. I, Tom hates when I do that, but I just, I, I like to bust the stones like that. Anyway, uh, you can get, I need no name at BFW, and you can get the whole crew on the site. And there's too many to mention anymore. Uh, you know, Teddy, uh, Swaz, Samron, of course. And if you if, listen, if you're not listening to Samron's preview shows, you need to find a way to work it in your week because she has just been fantastic doing those. And you're missing something if you're not. So check Samron out. Anyway, thanks again for listening. Had a great time doing this, and we will see you next time.